Matrix. Reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. The wizard sat in his recliner, writing an introduction for his podcast. As he typed the words, he remembered arriving in the small French village of Collier to attend the Carbohemia writing retreat with author Karen Carbo. That week, he'd eaten food, gone to the beach, and practiced writing in daily workshops. At the end of the week, he recorded a podcast with Karen, which was the podcast episode he was now writing an introduction for. The retreat was called Come to Your Senses, so the wizard figured he'd call the episode How to Come to Your Senses with Karen Carbo. The wizard paused. One hand absently stroked his long beard, which after turning shocking white due to experimental medications, had since settled into a gentle brown mat laced with wiry strands of silver. Outside his window, the rainy day had also transformed moving past its moody morning gloom to become bright afternoon as sunlight shone through the gauzy layer of clouds crowding the sky. Adjusting the blanket underneath his laptop, the wizard slowly read the paragraph he'd just finished, his nose upturned as if someone had walked in with fresh dog shit smeared across the bottom of their boot. No, no, this won't do, he muttered to himself. I've got to paint a picture. Bring the listener into the scene. Accentuate the sensory elements. Taking a deep breath, he pulled up the sleeves on his loose gray sweater, cracked his knuckles, and gave the introduction another attempt. The wizard reclined in his blue-gray leather lazy boy, slippered feet extending past the woven blanket wrapped around his legs for warmth. The room was cold since it was cold outside and the wizard despised artificial heat. He also adored the blanket, since it depicted dolphins jumping over a crystal in outer space. A laptop sat, rather appropriately, on his lap, and he slowly typed out the paragraph, pausing from time to time to stare off into space and let his mind reach for the right word. In late summer, he and his fiancée had arrived in Collier, a picturesque French village wrapped around a small bay on the Mediterranean Sea. Each morning, as the sun rose over the liquid blue horizon, the beachfront cafes came to life, bustling with French tourists eating flaky croissants, sipping foamy cappuccinos, and smoking their ubiquitous cigarettes. He remembered walking along the wet, stony path, waves sloshing to his left while an ancient Majorcan fort towered above him on the right, navigating the winding streets up the hill to Karen Carbo's home. Sitting in her backyard, he huddled beneath patio umbrellas with the other writers to avoid the full force of the now-looming morning sun. Each day, he and the other writers listened to Karen talk about the craft of writing, the value of daily practice, and, 
the essence of the retreat, the importance of weaving sensory details into one's writing. In the evenings, when the sun had set behind the verdant, vineyard-draped hills, the participants would return to drink rosé, eat fresh sardines and soft cheeses, and discuss the mysterious alchemy of the written word. In a way, all workshops are an extension of the writer running them, and like Karen herself, the atmosphere of those evening sessions was lively, laid back, witty, and insightful. After writing a series of unproduced screenplays, Karen published her first novel, Trespassers Welcome Here, in 1990, and has kept them coming ever since. Her volumes of written work range from fictional novels to literary biographies of kick-ass women to adventurous magazine articles, and most recently, yeah, no, not happening, a polemic railing against the great female self-improvement bamboozlement. The wizard picked at his mustache and reread the last paragraph several times. This was much better, he thought to himself. All it needed now was something tying it back to the title of the episode. Sort of like how we're always getting lost in whatever we're doing, and then we come to our senses as we refocus on the reality of our immediate perceptions. Also, he should probably come to his senses and write more clearly, since he had a nasty habit of getting hung up on weird metagimicry in his writing. So what did he want to say? Going to Carbohemia had been incredible. Karen was a fabulous writer and an amazing teacher. So maybe this was a case of show, don't tell. And he should just let their conversation speak for itself as he got out of the way and let Karen Carbo herself teach his listeners how to come to your senses. Hello, Karen. Hi, Devin. Welcome to Ritual Space. I am thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm technically in your space, but we're in a magic bubble within your space. We and are, and this magic bubble is hovering in the vicinity of the south of France, I believe. It is. We're not far from the Mediterranean. I can see windmills and uh, ancient Mallorcan forts out the window. And, and vineyards. And vineyards. And what a magical place to be. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Let's get deeper into the magic with a word. What's our magic word going to be? Moonfish. Moonfish. All right. One, two, three. Moonfish. What is a moonfish? A moonfish is actually endemic to Hawaii. Okay. And it's a big, round, kind of silvery gray fish that sort of looks like the moon. Interesting. What brought that to mind? Well, um, two things. I actually have a baby, baby granddaughter whose name is Luna. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also a Pisces, okay. as is she. Yeah. So we call her, her nickname is Moonfish. Ah, lovely. Yeah. I like those those connections. Right? The solar, or not the solar, the lunar forces. And, and the oceanic forces. And I've just been, um, it was funny, I was in my hotel room the other day, and I had a moment where I was like, oh, I've left my computer on, something's playing like white noise wave sounds. And then I was like, no, those are real waves. That's, wow. That's, that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, those of us who um, have spent a lot of time living in cities, um, sometimes if your apartment is too close to the freeway, you pr can pretend it's the ocean. <laughs> exactly. But here, you can just really hear the sea. So um, I've just spent an incredible week here at your writing retreat, Come to Your Senses, and uh, it's been really inspirational, I think is the word that I want to use. 
I feel like I've taken a lot in and uh, the listeners will get to see the fruits of that in the year to come as all of these fun new techniques and ideas spill out into the magic of this podcast. I'm curious though, how did you come to uh, envision this retreat in the first place? What brought this to you? Right. Well, um, I'm glad you asked that because it wasn't just, oh, writing retreats, they're so cool. You know, I really did think long and hard about um, what it what it might mean to bring people to this village in the south of France that we fell in love with, my my husband and I, and and we were inspired by it. Mm-hmm. And I just felt very moved to um, bring other writers here and other creative people here, not only to you know work in community and learn some some writing, but to just um, have an opportunity to to, to take part in the enchantment. Right. Because I feel like this is an enchanting place. It's a very old village. Um, It's the place where Matisse came in the summer of 1905. And everything, you know, those of us who aren't, um, you know, serious students of Matisse, but enjoy his work, everything we think of when we think of Matisse in terms of his palette and his playfulness and his affection for beauty and sensuality was born here. Wow. Prior to that, he was sort of, you know, the equivalent of someone who who painted motel hotel motel art. They wow. went over your sofa. Yeah. Um, he was older than a lot of the other artists at the time, 35, but he he was very discouraged. And his wife, Amelie, who is from the south of France, said there's a fantastic little village on the Mediterranean between the Pyrenees and the sea. And um, I think that it might be good to spend the summer there. And so he changed the history of art. That's amazing. Yeah, I think um, there's a without and a within to everything. And with creativity, so much of the focus is on that within of every writer has that little fantasy of I'm going to go to a cabin in the woods and not be bothered and then I'll write my manifesto. But I think we often overlook that we are translating that without through our within and vice versa. And that alchemy is central to the process. And you're going to paint differently in a seaside French village of Clouillère exactly. than you would if you were in a prison cell. Exactly. And in point of fact, not to, I know this is not a, an art appreciation podcast, although I think it kind oh, it of is. is. It totally is. I, I take all that back. Um, in a village not far from here called Saray, Picasso um, painted his first cubist. Mm. And it, if you go to Saray on a cloudy day, you can jo- just sort of look down an alleyway and see all these jutting images of kind of brown and gray and taupe colored buildings. And you can yeah. kind of see what he saw. So yes, definitely. We are always uh, interpreting our surroundings. And in fact, one of the things that, um, one of the bywords of the retreat is that we are what we point at. Mm-hmm. So often we think we are, you know, all of our um, internal experiences. And even, you know, I, I trauma has somewhat been overused, but, you know, we think we are what what has happened to us. We think um, our pain and, and, you know, those sorts of things are so much more of who we are than what we are looking at and pointing to and and developing a passion about in in the exterior world. Mm-hmm. What makes me think of one of my favorite uh, little Buddhist koans where the Buddha is like, I am pointing at the moon, don't look at my fingers, look at the moon. Exactly. And I think that idea of trauma is really relevant as well because that is such a, a word in the the conversation these days. And it's not that we need to tell people, stiff upper lip, get over it, 
move on. But when we focus on something, we allow it to become more and more a part of us. And if we're telling our own story and we are just focused on when I stubbed my toe that morning, rather when the waiter flirted with me and gave me a free cup of coffee, same morning, two different stories. And I think that ability to think about our power to uh, point away from our own navel and out to the world and see these are the things that I'm interested in and then how that reflects back on us is quite powerful. Exactly. And it also gives you, I think, a, a more really complete picture of who you are. Yeah. Right? Um, something uh, that I love about this place and I think contributes to the inspiration, which I'm, Devin, I'm just so thrilled because that's my goal, right? Is to mm. bring people here to, yeah, give them some writing tips, but also to, to you know, light that fire inside them. And um, I think to speak to this idea that um, what we point at, what we look at, what we bring into ourselves is as much as who we are as the things that have happened to us. Mm-hmm. Um, this village of Collier is, uh, to me, a perfect place for the looking outward and um, taking in kind of extremely healing vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, or you pointed out, that it's got three little bays that are on the sea and it also the Mediterranean or the um pardon me the Pyrenees jut up right against it so you're getting sort of the mountain vibe and the sea vibe all at the same time and I always feel like it's sort of sensory um sensory training wheels mm-hmm. because you come outside in the morning and you don't have to sort of get yourself in a mindset to look at the outside world the outside world literally sort of comes to you and sits in front of your feet and says appreciate me yeah it makes it easier. It does a lot of the heavy lifting. And I think um, if we want to think of writing craft or any creative practice as kind of like a fire, there's the, the the kindling, the logs, the fuel of experience. That's what you're burning and turning into something. And then there's that spark, that match of inspiration. And I think people get so focused on the idea of like tips and tricks when really that's just, you know, the little Boy Scout thing of are you going to make a little Lincoln log cabin or a little teepee. How are you going to build your fire? And I've seen, especially at like Q and A's where someone's like, I have a question. What's the magic secret that will make me a writer overnight? And it's like, it's not that it's finding those experiences and uh, moving through them, which I think has been um, really cool. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about, though, is I I was reading your Wikipedia because I'm a good little researcher, and I loved this phrase you used about doing guinea pig journalism. Right. And that was one of the ideas that I had early on where I was like, I want magazines to send me cool places. By the time I got around to it, magazines were like, no here's, mag- here's 50 bucks. <laughs> if you're <laughs> in a cool place, Give us a us list a of top 10 tweets this week. Um, but I'm curious um, how you approached that and some of the different fun little guinea pig experiences you got to do in those days? I it, it was that weird era at the end of the 90s where magazines kind of had this last gasp mm-hmm. and like the Condé Nast family was like sending people, you know, all over the world and spending all this money. And um, yeah, I mostly, most, most of my guinea pig adventures had to do with um, sort of water sports, surfing yeah. and swimming and um, scuba diving. Um you know, a lot of the things that I uh, was engaged with, um, I'm one of those people that is very, I pick up things fairly quickly and then I sort of get bored with them very quickly. So I'm somewhat perfect for that that mm-hmm. sort of activity. Um, that was what drew me into it. Where I was like, I don't want to pick a major. And if I pick journalism, I get to just keep learning about something new 
Great, follow heart surgeon around for a month. Write about it. Learn how to skin dive. Write about it. Like that was exactly. the dream. Exactly. Yeah. That was exactly it. And so, yeah, so I I had a incredible scuba diving adventures in Micronesia. Um, I you know went to Chile. I went uh, more scuba diving. Um, there's a island chain off of Venezuela called Los Rocas. Mm. Uh, but what what wound up happening? Well, this is sort of interesting. <laughs> so um, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily want to go to flying trapeze school. Mm-hmm. And I got known kind of, um, a lot of this I did for Outside Magazine and sure. also for um, Condé Nast Traveler. And not everybody um, thinks that's a good time. So sometimes they would get, I think, to be honest, writers with a bigger name who thought it would be a, a great way to like take the kids on vacation to Hawaii right. and go, but they would have to go on a night dive with manta rays. Mm-hmm. And maybe once they really thought about it, they thought that was not such a good time. So they would start calling me kind of at the last minute. Yeah. And one of the last jobs that I was offered was um, from Outside Magazine. They wanted to um, they were doing an issue on Indonesia, and they wanted to have a dive piece from Indonesia. But a week earlier, um, some so I'm not sure separatists, I don't think they were what we we're going to call terrorists, but some some politically unhappy people in Indonesia kidnapped the members of a dive boat. Whoa. And so whoever had been slotted to do that story was like, I'm out. I'm out. And they thought, Karen Carwell will do anything. (laughs) Let's call her. And so they called and they, you know, under normal circumstances, it was like an amazing opportunity. But I said, because I read the news, I said, didn't they just, wasn't a dive boat just kidnapped like three days ago? And they said, well, yes. And I said, but you know. getting kidnapped would be a heck of a getting story. Getting kidnapped. I said, I have a little child. You could get a movie deal off of <laughs> right? getting kidnapped. Right. In fact, there is an amazing book by Michael Scott Moore called, mm. I think, The Desert and the Sea or Between the Desert and the Sea. And he was, in fact, um, kidnapped um by Sudanese terrorists and held Some writers have all the luck. 935 days or something. Anyway. Wow. Put it on your reading list, listeners. Um, So anyway, that was kind of the beginning of like, wait a minute. Like now I'm getting known for like doing ridiculous things. And I had a child and- um, You don't want to be the Johnny Knoxville of uh, (laughs) travel journalism. Exactly. So We can um, fire Karen out of a cannon. (laughs) That was exactly it. Evil Knievel's looking for a sidekick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then actually the last piece I did, it was super interesting- um, because I also, um, I'm actually, Devin, I don't think you know this, but I'm a certified shark handler. Whoa, I did not know I that. I became certified to handle sharks in the Bahamas. You that have all of your fingers, so I wouldn't have guessed I, it. I do. Well, I was, I was, um, I was an expert at it, it okay. turns out. Um, but one of the last things that I did was to go to flying trapeze school. Mm. Um, to go to flying trapeze school. And when I realized that I had no fear yeah. left, I thought, this is not a good place to be mm-hmm. where you just put yourself in these situations and you're not afraid anymore, yeah. right? Because really I have no business flying on a trapeze, but there I was. So that was kind of the last hurrah, as it well, were. I think um, we've been uh, immersed in so much writing and it's very interesting to see people's different styles. And you read a piece um, a couple nights ago and it was just so interesting to see because a lot of it's been very descriptive, more memoir stuff. And then I saw the vein of journalism in yours very clearly because it was like, all right, I have to set a scene, but I have to do it in a very clear way and move the the thesis of this piece along and get to the information and like 
You know, it was really kind of plot driven, even though you were speaking about your own personal experience of struggling to learn French while your husband is playing um, basically a French lawn bowling platonk and drinking and hanging out and speaking very casual friends. And it was very funny. And I just loved seeing that like journalist uh, vibe through it. But I'm curious um, if you could speak a little bit more about your most recent book, um, which seems like another mix of sort of your own experience and then commenting on something, um, how that came about and what inspired you to write it. Well, it's called Yeah, No, Not Happening. And it has a very long subtitle, as nonfiction books often do. And I always butcher my own subtitle, but it was How I Gave Up Self-Improvement and Said, or How I Found Happiness, Giving Up Self-Improvement and Saying Fuck It All and You Can Too. Um, it's a great subtitle. <laughs> thanks. It's a bit unwieldy, as I think you can tell. Um, but it was something I actually, uh, before that book, I wrote a book called In Praise of Difficult Women that w- was profiles of 29, um, what we might consider difficult women from the present and the past. And something that um, I saw as a through line in, in the profiles of all these women is that at some point, they really sort of gave up trying to bend themselves into to to conform. They mm-hmm. gave up trying to 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 be what what culture wanted them to be, and they basically said "fuck it all." To shave down their square block to fit through the round hole. Exactly, mm-hmm. and I think you know this book. I think ostensibly is for women, but really, I think men um, are every much in a similar position. Uh, we don't hear about it a lot, and I think it's unfortunate. Uh, but men are—they have—they have a square box they're supposed to fit in as well. And I think women generally think that they're—and they are freer to do many things, like you know, walk down a dark alley at 3 a.m. But other than that, I think there's a lot of expectation. But that's another podcast for another time. Um, so I just became very aware when I sort of opened my eyes. I mean, I know I have my own things uh, throughout my life that I thought if I could only improve myself, if I mm-hmm. could only, um, you know, lose five pounds or run a 5K faster or write faster or play the piano better or whatever. But it has felt like, um, in, and it didn't start with the internet. It actually sort of started with the industrial revolution sure, yeah. and, and the rise of advertising mm-hmm. and the rise of advertising married to consumerism. Yep is that all of us are being pressed at all times, at all hours of the day and night to quote unquote, improve ourselves. But really that is, you know, it's a way of trying to be something you're not. And generally speaking, you can gain that by buying something, whether it's an actual item, whether it's a course. And and what it winds up doing for all of us is every, every moment we're alive in this body, in this place, is we are not satisfied with who we are. And you can spend an entire life mm-hmm. feeling like if you had only been fill in the blank. Well, you're in a marketplace selling solutions. And the way they do that is they have to diagnose your problems. Exactly. And sometimes it's direct, you know, do you have bloating and cramps? We have a solution. You're like, I do have bloating and cramps. I would like that solution. And other times it's much more pernicious because it's just this background hum of you're not invited to the party. Everyone in the beer ad is at a fun party and the DJ's great. And I always think it's so interesting. I've been in these moments where I'm like, this is a scene out of a movie. This is, you know, an MTV documentary. This is the beer commercial. And I see people wandering around looking for their friend that went to the bathroom. 
being on their phone. It's never just the like smiles and jubilation that you can get in the little little clip. It's a real experience. And even when it's fun and it's amazing, it's still like, oh, crap, I lost my group. I'm wandering around trying to find them. I'm not just in VIP the whole time high-fiving football players as they walk past. No, we never are. Nobody is. And, you know, our culture and our economy counts on the fact that we are going to be perpetually dissatisfied. Right. So I wrote the book. uh, It's, it's, yes, some... It's, I think, amusing um, and funny. I tend to write, um, uh, that, that is actually my default. You know, we all as writers have like a default. Mm-hmm. Some people are very good at description. Some people are very good at plot. Some people are very good at dialogue. And, you know, we tend to go to that place when we're feeling like, I thought I was going to write 750 words today, so I'm just going to rip out some jokes here. Um, anyway, it's it's funny, and there's a historical component kind of telling us how we all got here. And, you uh, and a psychological components, you know, telling us that a lot of it is about any kind of shame we feel for feeling mm. like misfits. And we all feel right like misfits because the beer commercial is always running, mm-hmm. whether we're literally watching it or it's on our phone or it's in our it's head. On the bus driving past. It's just that exactly. background hum. And I just, you know, it's interesting though, because it, it's, it came out um, during the pandemic and I think when I wrote it, we know nobody nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, as Monty Python tells yeah. us. No one expected COVID. And I, I felt like the conversation had really sort of swerved away from that. And I, I also had sort of hoped because living through lockdown and everything that we endured dur- during COVID, that, that maybe this wouldn't even be relevant anymore. But the instant we all started getting back into the world, it was like, I'm taking off my yoga pants, but now I have to get my special mom jeans, but not the ones that are really mom jeans. You have to get the kind of short ones, but not too short or else you're going to look like, you know, you don't know how to dress yourself. Mm-hmm. And they have to have the frayed hems. Oh, did you know these pants are $350? You don't have $350? Well, you better go sell some plasma because you better be wearing these pants at the next party you go to. So it just all starts again, you know? Oh, I mean, I mean, the COVID reset was so fascinating because I think there was a moment where we're, we're all like, okay, we're all dealing with something crazy together. So we all have this new solidarity that we have not experienced in a long time. We've all had to set down our dream of what we're going to do and how we're going to make that improvement and just deal with the crisis at hand. And I think there was this fantasy that we were going to take some sort of lesson out of it. And I think we failed that. And it was so funny at this moment when we were starting to have all the Zoom calls and then it became about the bookshelf behind you. And and don't forget the ring light. Oh, the ring light. Exactly. Because the early ring light adopters, I'm like, how does she look so great? And right. I look like a sad, a, a, a grieving Polish widow here, <laughs> like with my sad bookshelf and my bags under my eyes. Yeah. And- right. In a dark room. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, whatever it is, it only takes a second for somebody to jump out ahead and then everybody else to go, well, I want that. And then somebody else jumps in and goes, oh, you want that? I can sell you that. Here's an Instagram exactly. ad. Ring lights, fake book drop, back shelves. Exactly. I have, I have my, my four-week um, deep dive into how to, how to uh, do a Zoom call in a way that, that is both compassionate you know, with empathy and also effective in, in uh, you know, upping your market share. Like it, it, immediately, you know. Well, and you were talking about you know, there's a different version that's more masculine of this. And I think we're seeing a lot of these things I don't know if it's the end game or it's just reaching a new level, but it's become so scammy. Like we've seen this whole wave of crypto where it was, 
oh, look at these people. They bought Bitcoin and now they're millionaires. And then everyone jumping onto it and everyone realizing, wait, this is all so scammy. We're all being sold these illusions of status. And it's just created this, um, it's like a Hollywood movie set world where nothing's real anymore. Everything's a little Western village that you're just going to push right, it over. West world yeah, with yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah. No, and it's true. And it, it's somehow we also have, have kind of whatever suspicions we used to have about scams, we have abandoned it. We have, we have, we're like, oh, I, this seems scammy and it is scammy, but yet I am a first in line. But what if, what if it really can make everything better? And I think, um, like one of, you know, I, you, you read a little bit of my forthcoming book, Slightly Better, uh, but it's one of the- Great title, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. It's one of the mantras that I've explored. And it's funny because it's a little bit paradoxical. There's one way where it's saying, when you're feeling stuck, instead of reaching for that shiny solution someone's selling you, what's a little thing that's slightly better that's in reach that you can do? But the other way that I think about it is there's often times where if you ask yourself, okay, what would a slightly better version of this moment even be? We're sitting in your backyard looking at the beautiful landscape. If I had a slightly better wine, is that going to make this better? If you were a slightly more famous author, is that going to make this better? And it becomes kind of ridiculous. And I think these two things in combination mm -hmm. are a really great way to see through those scams and come to your senses, which I think that writing practice of becoming the detective, becoming the journalist and saying, what's actually going on here if I pay attention? If I stop looking with this filter that someone's glued to my face where I'm looking at all the problems because I, I need to go to the catalog and buy the solutions. Exactly. And instead going, wow, what if I just describe the wine that I'm drinking and the person that I'm with, and the rain that's falling, and the things that are happening right now, and realizing this is pretty complete. Well, and that's that's something else you asked um, at the beginning, what was uh, my mission or my motivation in beginning this? And something that I really noticed um, kind of into, I guess, the, like 2015-ish maybe, is that I, I have taught for a long time, and um, I had all, I've always been blessed with tremendously talented and gifted students, but their the worlds they were describing seemed flat and um, mm. very cerebral and very um, you know everything was sort of spinning in their heads. Associated, and, and there was no sense that their butts were in a chair and their feet were on the ground and the you know that they were in a three dimensional world. Yeah, and and um, you know, I, I got this idea that maybe we just need to sort of exercise those muscles that can help us re-enter real life, right? Um, and come to our senses, which of course it's a little play on words. Mm -hmm. um, you know, come to your senses, like feel your body in space, realize you know this gift of just being a human on this planet and what our senses can do, and you don't have to buy a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, get smart about that, but also make that part of your practice as a writer, a creative person, and just a human being. Well, this, this will get a little conceptual, but I think, you know, as writers, we're using language, which is this very bizarre, magical thing of sounds and symbols to evoke experience. And there's this translation where I'm taking this big experience, 
I'm condensing it down like I'm I'm zipping a file. So I'm compressing it down to symbols. And then in the reader's mind, it expands back out to be now I'm on a pirate island in the Caribbean and I'm fully transported. But when we're consuming something that isn't the full sensory experience, instead, it's this barrage of just specific data coming through our phone. I think you lose that. And so you're compressing something. It's like, uh, the loss of audio quality with MP3s, like vinyl has a fuller spectrum. And so if you're compressing MP3s and uploading them to YouTube and then using a ripper to rip that from YouTube, you're getting a tinnier and tinnier sound each time. So At a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. Right, exactly. And also I think, um, you know, it's interesting that we are, it's very hard for us to listen Mm-hmm. We are not, you know, our forebears um, were a, an oral, A-U-R-A-L, culture. Right. And they, were, they could sit around a fire and listen to a story for hours and hours and hours. And we have somewhat lost that capacity. Completely. And I think, it's a completely different mode of consciousness. Exactly. And I think you can argue that, um, or I can argue, and I will argue, that, you know, it's not a stretch to say that that's true in terms of all of our senses. Mm-hmm. That um, you know the zip file has has basically um, you know we've intellectualized everything or feelings. I feel this. I feel that. I feel this. I feel that. And that is something that we work on in workshop is how do you how do you on the page display your feelings so that I the reader can share in them as opposed to you in an expository fashion like telling me your feelings like I'm your therapist. Right. Yeah, that was one of the things that I thought was the biggest takeaway probably for me this week was there was a a piece that we read that was explaining people think of writing as catharsis and therapy, but then it's kind of like sitting with that friend that's just dumping and treating you like a free therapy session. You're like, Oh my God, like this isn't about me. And they said, think about your writing more cinematically. How do you take a few telling scenes storyboarded out? And that made me think of when you sit with someone who's an amazing storyteller and they're telling that same story, but they care about you as the listener and right. your experience. So you're along for the ride instead of you're like, all right, I get it. Your date was bad. Like, Jesus Christ, I should be well, filling you by the hour. Conversation is not recitation. Yes. Um, yeah. And I can't, I wish I could remember who said that. But basically, when you are having a conversation like we are now, mm-hmm. you're creating a new thing if it's working. Right. If it's just one person reciting something, that is dead Dead time and dead space. Yeah. It's not a b- debate where we just take turns with our talking points and, oh, well, that reminds me about me. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> that's great about you. That reminds me about me. But instead, discovering something in the middle because we didn't know where this podcast was going to go when we hit record. Right. And that was the uh, I, I, the great Fran Lebowitz quote, which is, the opposite of talking is not listening, it's waiting. Right. Waiting for that person to stop talking so that then you can, you know, talk about your problems. Not yours, Devin. One's problems. No, but I think that's a very real experience. <laughs> and I think um, there is something about the craft of writing where you get to talk to yourself, that can be very helpful. And I, I would guess like stage one is like the journal writing of I'm just hashing this out. This right. is me talking to myself. But I think what I found this week is that idea of, well, stage two is you having the conversation with yourself of saying, all right, yeah, how are we going to tell this story? How are we going to make this 
hop? How are we going to bring the listener in? Is that too much? And you're having your own like TV writers pitch meeting internally. And I, I loved what you said at one point about knowing what sort of writing you're sitting down to do. Are you writing for the reader right now? Or are you writing to explore the scene and discover that the twins meet by the punch bowl and you didn't know that until you wrote it out? But now that you know it, you can revise and say, all right, I have to get the reader over by the punch bowl so they can see the twins meet. Like, exactly. how do I accept and that? And you up? didn't necessarily know that that day when you sat down to write. No, not at all. So once you you figured that scene out, then the second part is figuring out what are the methods of communication that you're going to use to evoke meaning and feeling in the heart and mind of the reader? Those are two different things. And that's why, you know, in, in that there's writer's block, and I, mm. I think we do, we get very frustrated. Uh, oftentimes it's because the writer is trying to do two things at once that are actually neurologically incompatible activities. Right. The first is creating, and the second is then you have your creation and you're going to to form it in a way that you can communicate with another human being. And those are two very separate things. Yeah, totally different processes. And um, one of my favorite books on creativity is um, On Creativity by Rollo May. He's an oh, exis- gosh. Yeah, the existential psychologist. And he talks about this idea of you're sort of pushing yourself into nothing because the thing that you're creating doesn't yet exist. And so it is this very surreal process. And that's one of the things I love about these prompts and these experiences at a writing retreat is you wake up in the morning and you don't know you're going to be asked to wander around a market thinking about the emotion of envy. And that produces insight that you wouldn't generate if you were just staring at the blank page in your mythical cabin or scrolling through TikTok and just letting your thoughts fill with whatever is the first thing that the algorithm wants to show you. Exactly. There's definitely a kind of excavation into that unknown, into that non-existence that is very powerful. Right. And um, not everybody has the courage to excavate. And I that's why I every single person that comes here, every single writer that I work with, I just applaud them for um, wanting to spend precious minutes of their lives making this journey and doing this work. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious, because you've written fiction and you've written more nonfiction Mm -hmm. essay stuff, where do you feel like you start to realize when you have one of these ideas that begins whispering in your ear, whether this is going to be a fictional piece or this is something you want to explore first person? how How does that divide kind of show up for you? Well, I think... At the end of the day, a novel or a short story. So a piece of fiction, the bigger engine is emotion. Mm. So this piece that I wrote that um, you alluded to about learning French and so on and so forth, there were a lot of sort of things I wanted to to talk about in terms of just language acquisition and and you know how many languages are in the or how many words are in the English language and how many words are in the French language. And these are things that wouldn't necessarily lend themselves to. Um, I suppose I could have a professor in a novel, you know, talk about those things. But unless there was something interesting going on in the classroom, like someone right. was was plotting the overthrow of the government, it would just be it would just be boring ex- expository writing. Yeah. And I am interested in a lot of things, and I am interested in a lot of thoughts, and those will generally sift into um, essays, or if if there's enough of it, you know, a mm-hmm. book. You know, human relationships, 
um, characters growing and changing because they've been they've been um, suggested uh, um, subjected to to difficulty in life like that kind of dramatic conflict that evokes a lot of feeling potentially in the reader will generally shift over into fiction. Mm, I like that idea of like you're you're really getting into kind of the engine of what am I trying to communicate and is this a arc of emotion and discovery or is I have some thoughts that I want to kind of swirl around and and see how they can Yeah, and you can, know the I like to say and I don't think I invented it and I wish I could quote who said this perhaps maybe it was a, a instructor I had but um the plot of an essay are your thoughts. Mm. And the plot of um, a piece of memoir writing or a novel is what happens to the characters. Right. So it's not that in an essay I wouldn't refer to something that has happened to me, but it is in service to what I think. Mm-hmm. And in a piece of memoir writing or an autobiographical novel, which all novels are, are autobiographical because we're humans on earth writing about humans, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um it is what has happened to the character that's the engine. Right. And then your thoughts are sort of tucked in under that. It's like it, with the topic of self-improvement, it's the difference between saying, I want to talk about a critique of this industry and here's a story about how I got hooked on diet pills in college. Exactly. Versus I want to explore the emotional journey of a character who constantly feels like they're not good enough and comes to the realization that they can... They, that helping themselves is not buying another self-help book. And that's, it's not helping them. It's just right. making them feel worse about themselves. Yeah. You got it. Great. Exactly. Love it. Um, well, this has been such a magical conversation, a magical week, and I would love to share a little bit of this magic with our listeners. So this is the point in the episode where we come up with a spell, which is something that our listeners can do to come to their senses. And we want it to be real nice and manageable. You know, this is not go write a novel but oh, it's not. It's I thought not. that was my spell. I've got it all written down here. <laughs> write and publish the great American novel sometime within go. the next week. Three, two, one, go. Um, but yeah, I was wondering if you had a little um habit, technique, writing prompt, something that our listener can do uh to bring some of this magic into their own world. Well, you know, something I do uh when I'm sitting outside in particular, um, is I just sit there and I think, what am I hearing? What am I smelling? Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to sit in this chair? I should say, as a sidebar, um, French chairs are notoriously uncomfortable unless you're a bird perching on them. Yeah. <laughs> Waiting for that croissant crumb. Waiting for the croissant. And what am I, what am I seeing as last? Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because we take in almost all of um, our information in the world around us through our eyes. So right. I tend to deprioritize it. Yeah. Um. I love this idea, and I I generally like to add a little twist. I think we need a wizardly touch, but I think we need a wizardly touch. And I think so. You can go do this exercise whenever you you feel like it. But I would say wait for a moment when you feel that little self improvementy urge, when you're suddenly feeling just that little dip in your mood, and you don't even have to know that it was the the ad that triggered it. But you're just feeling that moment. Maybe you're stuck in your phone, and then just Take back your power and then do this and just sink deep. And Agreed. That and, is an excellent context for that. And I would say go through one round of just kind of noticing what's going on. And then you can ask yourself if you feel like it, a deeper question of what am I enjoying? What sounds do I hear? Oh, actually, that 
that bird song in the background is pretty, pretty nice, you know? Exactly. Oh, this chair is kind of uncomfortable, but you know what? My foot feels weirdly good for some reason. My left foot is kind of like having a good time today. And I think that can be a, a way to come to your senses and escape from this, this trap. And just taking a minute to be in your body. Right. Really, um, and you don't have to do anything fancy, and it takes a minute. But yes, what are you enjoying? Yeah, no crunches, no, no, no nothing, crunches, just, just no, being in it. Um, no downward facing anything. There it's we go. all upward facing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you, Devin. For more of Karen's magic, visit karencarbo.com. There you can find information on her books, read her blog, get writing tips, and find out about writing retreats in the south of France like Carbohemia, where this podcast was recorded, and where, if you can make it, I highly recommend going because it was an awesome experience. But you don't have to leave even the room you're in to experience the globe-trotting, time-shifting, life-affirming magic of this podcast as a ritual. And if you'd like more of this magic, visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where you can give me money, which makes it possible for me to make the podcast. And then in return, I'll give you cool bonus content, which I'll be honest right now is a lot of really sick playlists and DJ mixes because that's what I'm excited about right now here in November, 2022, the year of our Lord. And speaking of November, 2022, uh, if you're, listening to this now it's ahead of you if you're listening to this in the future it's behind you but november 30th 2022 is coming up which will be the drum roll please eight year anniversary of me being a wizard i've got something excited up my very large sleeves for that so stay tuned for that or i don't know what, what's the opposite of it. it's like not stay tuned but it's like rewind in the past i don't know time gets so weird anyways speaking of time that's the end of this episode I believe in you. Your magic is real and your writing will get better if you put some sensory details in it.